This is Cuerpa Política, a podcast about reproductive health, politics and justice in Latin America, funded by the Institute of Latin American Studies and co-hosted by me, Dr. Rebecca Ogden, lecturer in Latin American Studies at the University of Kent. And me, Dr. Rachel Sanchez-Rivera, postdoctoral fellow in sociology at the University of Cambridge. Cuerpa Política explores reproduction in Latin America through a series of conversations with activists, practitioners, artists, and researchers working in many different contexts. Latin American countries have some of the world's most contentious reproductive health laws and policies, and there are persistent challenges facing the quest for reproductive justice. In these episodes, our conversations with experts will explore contemporary issues, such as those relating to abortion access and obstetric violence, as well as histories of reproductive politics in the region. From the relationship between empire and reproduction, eugenics, 20th century fertility control measures and beyond. In many of the episodes, we consider culture as a lens through which to understand these contexts, exploring how cultural norms, as well as media and the arts, shape the political, legal, and social realities of reproduction and vice versa. Follow the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you access podcasts, and get in contact with us by our social media at Cuerpa Politica on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Dr. Leandra H. Hernandez is an assistant professor in communication studies at Utah Valley University. She earned her doctorate at Texas A.M. University. Dr. Hernandez enjoys teaching health communication, gender studies, and media studies courses. She utilizes Chicana feminist and qualitative approaches to explore Latinx cultural health experiences, Latinx journalists and media representations, and reproductive justice and gender violence context. Her teaching philosophy is informed by social justice approaches, and she is passionate about mentoring undergraduate students through diverse and inclusive research projects. We, we hope you enjoyed this episode. So, uh, Leandra, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, firstly, we would like to talk about how you're able to highlight uh, Latinx experiences in your work and in communication studies like theories, methodologies, and practices more broadly. Yeah, so the communication field is far wide-reaching, right? In the discipline of communication, we have several sub-disciplines and sub-areas, including but not limited to um, media studies, journalism, family and interpersonal communication, organizational communication, and on and on. And um, like even just as a fun side note, if you look at the National Communication Association website, you'll see that there are probably over like 50 divisions and caucuses that all highlight different um, areas in communication. So we have in our national organization, the Latino Communication Studies Division and the La Raza Caucus, both of which um, work together to highlight Latino scholarship and um, Latin American scholarship that looks like pan-ethnicity and Latinidad more broadly. And then we also have the La Raza Caucus, which advocates on behalf of um, students and researchers and scholars in the field, as well as highlights like our mentorship initiative and things of that nature. So when I was in graduate school, I actually didn't even know Latino communication studies was a thing. And this was about a decade ago. Um, but I think that's also symptomatic of like how programs are siloed, right? How, um, 
individuals are in contact with each other's work or not. And um, my really good friend and colleague, Dr. Amanda Martinez, actually introduced me to the division several years ago. And then that's kind of when I found my home. So it's like when you're able to um, not only see yourself represented in the field, but also find a space for your research and collaborations. And that's how I met um, Dr. Sarah de los Santos Upton, uh, who's one of my research collaborators, Diana Martinez as well. And yeah, without the division and caucus, I honestly don't know if I would have been able to find a home for my own research that looks at the intersections of both like Latino and Latin American experiences in reproductive spaces. Thank you very much. And now that you mentioned your uh, research, one of the most important contributions of your work is bridging together uh, Latinx experiences in the borders and conceptions of motherhood uh, and the current political climate. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that? Yeah, yeah. So um, most of my work is collaborative and feminist in nature, right? So I truly believe in working with many of my colleagues, not only in border studies and Latino communication studies, but health communication as well. And my research in reproductive justice spaces actually, I mean, I've always been interested in reproductive health more broadly. But in 2015, 2016, my colleague, Dr. Sarah de los Santos Upton and I, I mean, I keep saying colleague, she's my best friend, right? Let's be real. So um, like Sarah and I were both born and raised in Texas, although opposite ends of the state. So I was born in Houston, which is on the, well, depending on how you're defining the South, right? South-ish end of Texas. She's from El Paso, which actually might as well be more New Mexico than Texas. And I say that affectionately, because that's how she describes it. So Texas has always been a hotbed of reproductive politics and issues. There's no surprise there. It's a largely conservative state, um, largely run by mostly conservative Republican politicians. And I feel like the entire history of reproductive politics in Texas has largely focused on pro-life, pro-choice binaries, right? There's always struggles over abortion rights and abortion access. Um, there's always threats to Planned Parenthood and other clinics that traditionally serve minoritized communities. And at the same time, we were seeing these issues going on in Texas in like 2015, 2016. We were also seeing similar parallel issues happening throughout Latin America. So Sarah and I both identify as Mexican-American, but also have very strong ties to the U.S.-Mexico border both through like ancestry, lived experience, things of that nature. And it was at the same time we started seeing headlines just not only in the U.S., but throughout Latin America about violence against mothers, violence against women, um, violence in reproductive spaces more broadly. And then also probably on the most ex extreme end of the spectrum, um, women who are undergoing voluntary, voluntary, right, sterilizations because they literally could not take care of more children, even if they wanted them. And then also pregnant women being murdered with no retribution or justice for the victims or their families. So that's kind of where together we started tracing the roots of what we call reproductive feminicidios. And like we talk about it in our first book. And the book came out in 2018 and we started thinking it was kind of like a blending of border studies, Latino communication studies and health communication, which is where I, I see myself oriented. And 
I mean, traditionally, you know, most of the framing that we use for that topic comes from Mexican feminist scholars, right, who have written incredible works on just feminicidios more broadly. And the typology of feminicidios looks at all kinds of violence, including but not limited to um, feminicidios in family spaces, domestic violence spaces, um, also like institutional structural spaces, but there wasn't really anything there that helped us think through what it looks like in reproductive spaces. So it started there in about 2016, 2017, and now we've been tracing uh, reproductive feminicidios happening at the U.S.-Mexico border, but also on both sides. Uh, and now, because we're already like talking about the U.S.-Mexico border, uh, we understand that you have written consistently about the current political uh, climate, racialization processes, and how this impacts uh, reproductive injustices more broadly in the U.S.-Mexico border. Could you provide uh, some context just for the listeners to understand what's going on, maybe from the forced hysterectomies in ICE detention centers to the journey more generally, and maybe if we want to talk a little bit more about what's happening in Texas right now, like that would be like very interesting as well for the listeners. Yeah. Yeah. So for like a little bit of context, even though I was born and raised in Houston, I actually lived very close to the San Diego Tijuana border um, in California for several years before moving to Utah. And Sarah being so close to the El Paso Ciudad Juarez border in Texas, like that opportunity gave us a lens through which to view just border issues more broadly in between California and Texas, right? So what we've been seeing in the last several years is obviously no surprise here, right? Migration from various Latin American countries to the United States because of a whole host of political, governmental, and social issues going on. Um, and every time I talk about it, I always want us to remember the role of like U.S. interventionist policies in shaping migration, right? Because I think that's an important part of the of the larger puzzle that gets left out quite a bit, especially in larger news and political discourses about migration writ large. Now, at the U.S.-Mexico border more specifically, what we're seeing is the increase in um, detainment camps, right? So individuals crossing the border, coming to the United States, being held in these camps, essentially. And in the time of COVID, what is even more concerning is the way in which, well, not only the way in which families are being separated, right? So family-child separation is one huge, huge issue with little to no plans in place to reunify families, right? So there are reports of children having been placed in foster systems with new families, um, and some families and some parents literally can't find their children, right? So that's one issue. But then we also have the concerns about how individuals are being detained physically in close spaces with no ability to social distance. And as we know, right, like you can say time and time again in the time of COVID, social distance and wear your mask, but that's a set of health recommendations that isn't always easily implemented, particularly at the U.S.-Mexico border. And then if we add on to that, there are more reports of um, problematic and violent healthcare practices that are being utilized on women. Um, I don't know if, if y'all saw this recently within the last year or so. I think it might have been a doctor. I can't remember which city specifically, but he was doing tests on detained women 
And then they later found out that he didn't even actually have the medical credentials that he needed to be practicing healthcare. So it's like the situation just gets more and more dire. Um, and Sarah and I also have a piece that came out last year about violence against transgender migrants at the border. So it just, you know, when you think about um, the detainment practices, the healthcare violences and things of that nature, and then when you read reports of transgender women who have said that they are being detained with cisgender men because of, well, I don't want to say lack of understanding about gender identity, but really just the violence that encapsulates the entire situation. There are so many problematic angles of it um, that I feel like just aren't really getting the detention they deserve, the attention they deserve, especially in new spaces. Yeah, definitely. And I think like there we can just like talk a little bit more about the forced hysterectomies that are happening in ICE detention centers. And I was wondering if you wanted to go into detail with what happened like more or less like a year ago. And I was wondering if you wanted to go into detail with that. Around summer, early fall of 2020, we started to see news reports coming up about um, medical neglect and questionable hysterectomies, right? Um, so one thing that I want us to keep in mind here is that the hysterectomies going on at the U.S.-Mexico border are not anything that are unusual to our country's history, right? Um, as Rachel and I know, we've been on panels together in the past. Reproductive injustice and violence has quite literally colored the history of the United States and healthcare context, right? Whether we're thinking about Mexican women who were sterilized in the 1970s in L.A., whether we're thinking about... Um, for sterilizations and violence against Native American, Indigenous women, Puerto Rican women, and the like. And in this moment, we started to see it happening at the U.S.-Mexico border as well. Now, there was one whistleblower at the center of it who literally brought everything to light. And I can't even imagine, like, what would have happened if the whistleblower hadn't brought it up, right? Like, what something that I'm just worried about personally is what else is going on there that we just don't know about. Now, when the whistleblower brought up the issue of forced hysterectomies and other problematic health um, practices going on at the border, that's when we started to see that it wasn't just limited to the U.S.-Mexico border, but it was also happening in states like Georgia, for example, which are not regionally, I think, associated with the American mythos of the U.S.-Mexico border. But that's when we started to see it really coming to light. Reports about the forced hysterectomy talked a lot about how individuals were not tested for COVID, even though they wanted to be, that um, medical requests filed by detainees were either shredded, thrown away, or just not addressed. Um, medical records were fabricated, according to some of these reports. And then um, we have on the other extreme end of the spectrum, the forced hysterectomies. Now, ICE detention centers in many of their responses in different news reports said that um, they were general, anonymous, unproven allegations that they should be responded to with skepticism. But on the other end of the spectrum, Several of the women who helped the whistleblower file her case said that the hysterectomies weren't the, the only violences they were experiencing either, right? So um, at the end of the day, I think it just goes to show how like history repeats itself in really 
problematic ways. And that even if individuals think that reproductive injustices and violences are a thing of the past century, they're absolutely not right. Like this is something that's happening in this very, in this very moment. Yeah, no, definitely. And I I think maybe this is because like, it is like our research more or less uh, linking together, but like, I see very clearly the legacies of eugenic coming in together, like from the forced hysterectomy, the different like um, sterilization, like throughout the 20th and 21st century and the like the the now contemporary uh, separations of minors from their families uh, and just more broadly, like uh, as you were saying, like this like reproductive feminicidios. And one thing that... Uh, came to my mind when you were talking is what about instances like of resistance? What is the role of health activism, for example, when discussing critical health communications methods in the U.S.-Mexico border and the violence against uh, migrant women? Yeah, so that's such a good question, too, because one of the things that I often worry about, like not only in my own research, um, but just in conversations more broadly about this topic, is the, the possibility for Latina and Latin American to constantly be um, victimized and re-victimized, right? And it's like, on the one hand, I want us to acknowledge that there are very real violences happening here within this larger pattern, like you noted, right, of um, eugenics and violence more broadly. But also the fact that, as we know, like Latinas and Latin American women are resourceful, they organize, they get together and they push back, right? And I think that's such such an important part to remember here and to keep in mind. Um, so like on the one hand, even news reports have talked to um, transgender women survivors from the U.S.-Mexico border, right, who have talked about not only the injustices they faced, but also like the role that they played in taking care of other women and still trying to subvert the system even from within it. And like, that's one case. But then I also think about like other organizations at the US-Mexico border that are largely run by women, staffed by women, organized by women who are also providing the care and the help that they need. So like one example, um, Sarah, again, and I, along with our colleague, uh, Dr. Carlos Tarin, who's also at the University of Texas in El Paso, wrote about the uh, Familias Unidas de la Chamisal, an organization in El Paso that has really organize and work to push back against like violent environmental toxins and um, like school building concerns that were impacting their young children. And again, right, like I think if if generally Americans only tend to read national news, right, then these are these smaller cases of like power and resistance and subversion that aren't um, broadcast more widely. Then also, like if we think about the role of researchers who also identify as activists, that's where we can see a lot of the earlier research areas that I mentioned converging together with um, like praxis based outcomes. Right. So the journal Frontiers in Communication, for example, in 2019, came out with a special issue on um, critical health communication methods and theories and um, associated topics. And even in health communication spaces, in the communication discipline more broadly, those of us who do work at the intersections of like critical health communication, um, border studies, intersectionality, feminist studies, we're there, but it hasn't always been easy to get our work um, welcomed or published in health communication spaces. I think really just because health communication as a subfield 
had different like epistemological lenses, right? So more recently, though, we're starting to see scholars um, like Shanak Sastri, Mohan Dutta, um, and others coming together to not only make space for critical health communication methods, but also to call for it and advocate on behalf of it, right? So like even those of us who are working in this space, for example, like we are um, not only teaching about it, talking about it, researching it, but those of us who do engaged learning and service learning teaching, we're also connecting our students with um, related organizations in our areas to help get them involved as well. Because as you could probably guess, like in my example, living in Utah, um, Utah is a largely white state. It also is um, major, not majorly, but mostly conservative for the most part. And when I talk about reproductive feminicidios or violences with my students, many of them are like, I've never heard about this before in my life. How can we get involved? Right. So I also like to acknowledge the power of our students as well and like getting out there and and making change because all it takes is just a little bit of awareness about it. Right. And then you start to see everything else um, follow through. Yeah, most definitely. And I think like um, the fact that you started this intervention saying my work is collaborative and feminist in nature, like translates like not only like intersectionally inside of your own scholarship, but also like outside. And because we're already talking about activism, could you tell us how we as scholars and activists that are listening now, like can teach about these topics that can be categorized as like difficult or sometimes even triggering? <laughs> I feel like that's my whole teaching career in a nutshell, <sighs> but it's just because that's how I see the world, right? It's not only the idea of acknowledging the problems and seeing why they happen, but what is it that we do about it, right? So here at um, UVU in the Department of Communication, we have two majors. So one is public relations and strategic communication, and then the other one is applied communication. And that's kind of one of the main like frames or banners that we use for the department, right? What do we do with the knowledge we have, especially in an applied context? And I mean, we all know that these conversations can be tricky, right? We are talking about race, ethnicity, sexuality, gender, violence, racism, and the list goes on and on. And um, one of the things that helps me the most is thinking about it through the lens of, um, like a teaching philosophy of critical love, right? So in um, intercultural communication, there are several scholars who have been really helpful for me in terms of helping me think about critical love in the classroom. And some of them include Bernadette Calafel, um, Rachel Alicia Griffin, Robert Gutierrez Perez, who's also one of my dear friends and fellow collaborators. And um, critical love helps us acknowledge that we have to have these conversations, right? That we can't we can't shy away from them, but it's acknowledging like each other's humanity and perspectives in the process. Um, for me, it's also a very similar parallel to like the Chicana feminist principle of honoring vivencias, right? Or honoring students' lived experiences. It's, it's the idea that like, if we stay away from these topics, we're actually doing more harm than good, right? And then, and then it's providing the space, creating the classroom relationships, and then saying like, I know these topics are going to be challenging, we're going to make sense of it together, um, and we're going to respect each other in the process. And so far, that's helped me a lot. I mean, of course, 
as we know, we encounter resistance along the way. That's just a part of life. But um, having these conversations with students about these topics and then being able to see the amazing work that they do in like their engaged learning and service learning projects just makes it all worth it at the end of the day. Yeah, definitely. And I think uh, just to wrap everything up, um, uh, could we talk about your current uh, or future projects and how you will incorporate uh, communication studies like borderlands like and reproductive justice? And I think I might have add like, you know, this teaching philosophy of critical love into the mix. Yeah, yeah. So, um, oh, we have a lot of good things going. So Sarah and I are currently working on our next book project. When that will come out, we have no idea. Hopefully, like in the next three to five years, right? Um, but so our next book project is kind of like a, a part two or a follow-up to our first book, right? So we introduced um, the topic of reproductive feminacy videos in the first book, and now we're starting to explore what it might look like in new or recent contexts, right? So in our first book, for example, we talked a little bit about the Zika virus and how that was framed in news discourses and how that also implicated women from a gendered perspective. Well, now we have COVID, right? And it's like, can we can we just stop getting the global health concerns for a minute? Um, so yeah, so that's one topic we're currently exploring. Um, we're also doing some other parallel studies that look at um, news framing of the Me Too movement and um, sexual violence and assault, and also thinking about um, discourses that not only characterize the Me Too movement more broadly, but those that discuss the survivors in the midst of it. Um, and then the third project we're currently working on is a, it's a look at a concept we're developing called, well, not developing, we already have the word, right? But we're just applying it to our experiences. Um, where we're thinking through comadrisma or like you know, in, in Spanish, comadre literally translates to co-mother, but you can also think of a comadre as like a godmother, a madrina, um, a family friend who fills that maternal role. And we're thinking through how comadrisma as a form of like solidarity, activism and connection can help us rethink um, maternal familial relationships outside of the bonds of biology. So like, for example, um, Sarah has two young children and I am not a biological mother, but we're thinking through like how comadrisma can help women in the academy build these bonds. We're also thinking through how it could extend to um, like activist spaces and things of that nature. And we're also hoping to, I mean, not only to continue having these conversations with students, but also to bring in more student research assistance along the way, particularly in our news framing analyses. Um, because like here at UVU, we have several students not only interested in research more broadly, but interested in journalism more specifically. So it's kind of one way we can bring it all together. Thank you very much. Like that all sounds super exciting. I'm very excited to see to, to see that come into fruition. Uh, and yeah, thank you very much. This was a fantastic conversation. Thank you to the Institute of Latin American Studies, School of Advanced Study, University of London for generously funding this project. Thank you for listening to this episode of Cuerpa Politica. Join us for a new episode every fortnight and click on the follow button to receive notifications about podcast episodes.